Because what we find, to be honest with you, Cody, is a lot of our new graduate veterinarians are very reluctant to take vacation. Um, and Not so- a millennial. A millennial <laughs> reluctant to Welcome to the Seven Summit Society Podcast. We're a team of veterinary professionals dedicated to collaboration, mentorship, and great practice culture. We will inspire, educate, and thrive together with you to build a better future for practice ownership. We want to change the perception of what it means to own a veterinary hospital. It is financially attainable. It can happen with work-life balance, and it can be on your own terms. Join us now. Hey, everyone. Welcome to the podcast. Today, it's just going to be Dan and I. Uh, The rest of the 7S team are all over the map. So uh, hello, Dan. Hey, Cody. How are you today? Good. I'm a bit under the weather. Um, I've lost a bit of my voice, so I'm not going to have the same sort of consistent, beautiful voice that the listeners are are used to. I was going to say that you kind of got that Brenda Vaccaro uh, voice right. today. Yeah, but, yeah. Um, it's, got a, it's got a smoky feel to it. So, uh, but <laughs> uh, I, I'm, I'm feeling okay. It's just attacking my larynx. Gotcha. So today, I would love to be able to talk about contracts. Uh, this is maybe not the most sexiest of all topics, but it is so incredibly important uh, to, to just give some gems to some, some uh, new grads, uh, some of the students that are out there in terms of some of the, scenes, the things that we've seen on both sides in negotiating contracts. I've often joked that uh, you know, one of the most rewarding things professionally for me would be if I was a, if I was a, a, a consultant uh, on employee contracts because I think there's so much opportunity and upside, uh, but there really isn't a lot of resources out there for veterinary students or young veterinarians to really know what their options are when it comes to each sort of piece of an employment contract. Yeah, I, I would agree with that, Cody. And I think particularly as the um, the elder statesman, if you will, the, the proverbial boomer of the group, I can still remember my first quote unquote contract when I graduated many years ago was literally one page. And so much has changed in the 28, 29 years since I graduated. And so now with all the different competing interests, um, the, the, the how the, the tight labor market, all of these types of things have really come together. And I think more than ever, a contract is absolutely vitally important because I'm sure you can, you hear this all the time. I certainly do is I was promised this, but I'm getting this. And so if that is truly the case, and we hear this more times than not, particularly with our new graduate veterinarians, that contract becomes pivotally important that you have to make sure and ensure as that new graduate veterinarian, before you take that job, everything that you want and desire, if you will, and that's a broad term, is inputted into that contract. That a contract is not just, here's your compensation, it's a whole lot more. So it's not just compensation, here's my benefits. It's really, um, really a, a great agreement to help codify what your expectations are, and hopefully we'll have a chance to talk a little bit more about that that first year out as far as that goes. 
Yeah. So, and it's not, it's not, uh, it's not just entry, uh, right. It's not, like you said, just that salary and benefits, but it's also, uh, within, so within that job, what, what are those expectations? But then what a lot of people don't think about is also exit as well. So it has to be very clear, uh, what that potential exit is going to look like. And that's where I see a lot of, uh, people that are end up being burned uh, in the long run. Now, you may be surprised to know this, uh, but maybe up here in Canada, it's a little bit more of the Wild West, but I am still shocked with how many associates are operating within veterinary practices with no contract in place. Uh, promised a contract, given a term sheet, or maybe even signed off on a contract for renewal after one year, and the practice owners never think about it again. And I'm talking to these veterinarians and I say, well, what does your contract say? And they say, well, I don't have a contract. They, it, it just never happened. And it just blows my mind at how common that still is. Yeah, I, I would say even um, even here down in the States, we will see that. And, 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 and there's multiple reasons for that. It could be everything from, oh, um, I've known this, um, this uh, employer for some time. I worked uh, as a uh, before I went to veterinary school, um, we kind of did the handshake deal. And I would say this, that um, more than ever, a contract becomes pivotally important. It doesn't matter how long you've known that individual, how much you've articulated, communicated, and agreed upon. There is nothing like having it written and codified into an agreement. Because if there's ever any kind of missed expectation or, gosh forbid, something like a dispute, now you've got some written agreement that you can go back to and say, hey, this is what we mutually agreed upon. And that's that's really the whole purpose of a contract. It's mutually agreeable terms. And if something should happen, let's say there is some sort of dispute, a missed expectation, if you will, that you can come together and hopefully resolve those issues based on what you've agreed upon that has actually been codified in an agreement. So long story short, Cody, my recommendation is any new graduate, before you take that job, you should have and fully expect a contract. And keep in mind that contract is not a one-way contract. It's very much a two-way contract. It's your responsibility as well before you just sign on the dotted line that you've reviewed that contract. And I would even say, have either somebody in the institution that you're graduating from, or even in some cases, uh, Prudence would say even have an attorney take a look at that. Um, there, there's a reason for those contracts, because if you have a missed expectation, as you just mentioned, and you need to have an out, if it's not codified in the contract, you you might be subject to anything that you just because of the employment that you might be subject to, including things like non non competes, those types of things. Yeah, so I guess that's our first tip, right? Uh, make sure that there is a contract in place that you are comfortable with. Uh, I I still know even even though we're saying that, that it's an absolute must, I can guarantee you that somebody that's listening will enter into an employment agreement without a contract. And it's just, it's terrifying, especially this day and age. Um, now that, that, now that I'm a little bit seasoned out in the real world, um, I've seen every possible permutation and combination of, of that breakdown between employee and employer. It is so vital. It just, it's a, it's a have to, you have to have that in place and it has to be valid for the entire term of your employment. 
Absolutely. Let me give you a perfect example. I was talking with a veterinarian about uh, six months ago, was out uh, just over a year and uh, suffered a, um, a pretty catastrophic health event that precluded this individual from continuing his duties as a, a practicing clinician. He had no contract whatsoever. And because he could not, uh, for about a three, three and a half period, month period of time, could not practice as a veterinarian, he was terminated. He was terminated. His employment was terminated. Um, now, now that may be subject to, to state laws, but in that situation, he was terminated at will. And if there was potentially an employment contract that allowed for, for instance, a disability, be it a short-term or long-term disability, then that may not have happened to that individual. Now, that's a, maybe an outlier in extreme position, but again, a contract becomes pivotally important um, upon graduation. Absolutely. And, and it's not all like, it's not always, I don't want people to think about, they always think about the worst. Um, I'll give you an example of, of something that was not in somebody's contract. So uh, there, there was a, an associate veterinarian who had some, some health issues, uh, had to go for um, a, a very um, intensive surgery. And in, it was not, you know, within the contract, there was the ability to not compensate her, uh, to, to put her on unemployment, uh, a sick leave. But it was chosen that that, uh, that associate veterinarian was going to be paid at full salary uh, throughout the, the entirety of her sick period. So, like, there, there's, it, you know, there, it does go two ways, right? There's always going to be employers out there that, that give you um, more than, than what's specific in your contract, but you do have to, you truly do have to protect yourself. Now, looking, looking back on the first time that I had an employment agreement before I became a practice owner, um, and thinking back on it, it's almost humorous of how little resources and how poorly educated I was. So I, I did get an attorney uh, to, to look at my contract, but I still had no idea if, even how to assess if this attorney was a good option as an attorney to look through this. So, so I, I hope that maybe there's, there's some better education out there. I hope that there's universities that are supporting their veterinary students. I, I feel like there's there should have been more resources out there than I felt like I had access to, but it is kind of scary of how uneducated I was when I first put my, my, uh, my name down on that piece of paper. Yeah. And, and I'm, my own experience is very much like your experience. Um, I did everything wrong. I interviewed, fell in love with um, the position that I wanted here. Uh, right out of school, uh, followed my fiance, now wife, and uh, jumped at the opportunity. Like I mentioned, it was a one-page contract. To be honest with you, Cody, I don't even think I even read the contract. All I looked at was, okay, here was my pay. And and unfortunately for me, about a month into my first job, it was like, uh-oh, I got myself in the wrong place. And guess what? When I look back, it was a four-month clause that I had in there that I had to, um, upon resignation, I had to wait before I could leave that position. So first and foremost is you need to have an employment contract. And as we mentioned, second, you got to read it. And then you really need to find somebody in your sphere of influence, either within the institution. And I would even say a good attorney who can review that it is well worth 
having somebody with a knowledge and experience in contract law to take a look at that contract. I think that's that's really is a minimum nowadays. Yeah, I, I'm thinking now, why did I, I was at a university that had a law program. Why did I not go find an, a contract uh, lawyer that was a professor and, and <laughs> ask them to review it? They probably would have, uh, but you feel like as a student, you don't want to bother anyone, right? But yeah, it, it, I would say leverage every resource possible for not even just vetting that specific contract, but it'll really come in handy in the future as well. You know, if you look, if you go back to school, the busyness of school, and then think about it. You know, we look at our, our senior year when we start to get serious about looking for positions. Then we've got we got our boards to take. So we're studying the first half of our senior year. We're in clinics. We're working, you know, 12, 13, 14 hour days. Uh, then we're studying um, for the boards. And then if you look at the whole process from the time we start looking for a position to the time we sign a contract or we take that first position, it's really down to like a two, maybe three month period of time. And so the process itself is not really conducive to allow the due diligence and all that's involved with finding that ideal first job because everything is just so it's just it's almost like speed uh, skating as far as that goes. And that's why one of the advices I give when I'm in the university setting is start now. Don't wait till your senior year. Start now. Start talking with other veterinarians. Talk with other new graduate veterinarians. What did you like? What did you not like? If you had to do it again, what would you have done? And so now it starts to allow you to say, all right, these are this is my wants. These are the non-negotiables. Because all too often, again, what tends to happen is we graduate, we find that job, and it's so much driven on, all right, this is the salary I want. And my advice is that is just one part of the equation, and it's a very small part of the equation as far as that goes. Yeah. And and that just makes me also think about as well that there's time on the other side, right? So make sure that that even if you do find yourself um, all of a sudden working after vet school, uh, that you know when the terms of that contract are up for negotiation, and then maybe you have the ability to leverage some more resources to renegotiate the things that are important for you because everything is negotiable. As I, I, I love to, to tell uh, prospective employees when we're negotiating contracts, I say like you, you, there's nothing you can do in this contract negotiation that will personally offend me. So I want you to just tell me the things that you are thinking about. And I like, I just cannot get mad in a contract negotiation. You might not get what you are asking for, but like that is the, you know, that is the time also is is you can renegotiate all of these things. This isn't uh, indentured servitude. This isn't a contract for life. Uh, You, you have the ability to change things. So, so maybe it's also being proactive on the other side of that of that employment, uh, being able to um, renegotiate that. I think that's very important. It's kind of like buying a car, right? We all remember buying our first car and it's like, oh, I'm, I'm scared. I don't know what to do. I can remember asking my uncle, hey, I'm going to go buy my first car. I think it was like a 1974 Chevy Nova. And, and I, I had no clue you can negotiate. You mean... I could ask for a free tank of gas. I could ask for that extra spare tire. I had no clue until my uncle's like, hey, you got to ask for this stuff. Right. <laughs> You've got to ask that stuff. So think of it kind of that mentality. 
If yeah. you don't ask, then they assume you're fine with everything. So exactly. And if good. if you ask something and that employer gets angry at you, then that's not a place you want it to be anyways, right? If there right. wasn't somebody you wanted to you felt comfortable negotiating the terms of your employment. It is your employment after all. If if they're if they're gonna get upset over a negotiation that you just dodged a bullet <laughs> because that's probably a big, a big time red flag. I, I agree. Here, here's a perfect example. Um, I used to say when people would come to me when I was in the university setting, hey, do I need to do I need to talk specifically about my expectation on mentorship? Absolutely. Um, that presupposes you know what you want in mentorship. And I'm going to be honest with you now, as, as, as time has evolved, I am now counseling new graduate veterinarians. They should now have a clause in their agreement uh, as it relates to mentorship, that it is spelled out. Why? Because you and I both know the statistics show with new graduate veterinarians was anywhere from six to eight out of 10 new graduate veterinarians did not get and receive the mentorship that they want. So that's, that's yeah. a perfect example. And I guarantee you there's very few contracts that have actually codified um, on the agreed terms of mentorship. And so that's a perfect example um, that, that I, that I use now with a lot of new graduate veterinarians that once you've agreed to the terms is what does mentorship look like for you? Because I'm a firm believer. It's very individualized, codify that and put that into the employment agreement. For sure. So let's, let's talk a little bit about, uh, some of the nuts and bolts, you know, the regular nuts and bolts within a, within a typical contract. So first off the, the big juicy meaty item is salary, of course. Right. And I, I love to joke around with students sometimes that I say, man, I would really love to be able to negotiate your contract for you. Like an agent, uh, like a sports agent negotiates a contract for a sports team. Right. Like that's, you know, that's the level that some of that some people have when they're negotiating contracts that they have actual professional agents that are able to, to do that. And I say, but you're going to have to give me a 10% kickback, but it's a, it's a tongue in cheek joke, right? But could you imagine if, if you and I got to go in on every contract negotiation of new graduates, the, the overall collective increased value that we could probably get for the profession. And it's very important too, because uh, I'm sure you've seen a lot of the data sets out there in terms of the, the, when you negotiate that starting salary, obviously a lot of other things need to be in place like mentorship. But when we're just specifically talking about salary, when you negotiate that salary, um, it, it really affects your total lifetime earning potential. It's, it's setting the stage for, for a large part of your career. It really does. And we do know that there is a wide range of, of salaries that are out there today for new graduate veterinarians. Um, and, a, and a big part of that is, unfortunately, many veterinarians don't know their worth. And I always say the most important question that you have to ask your future employer as a new graduate veterinarian is not how much you're willing to pay me, but how much can I earn? as an employee in your organization. What does that presuppose? What that presupposes is that that employer is going to be a good steward of you and your skills and is going to make you and help you become a high producing, high performing veterinarian. So what does that look like? What's kind of the, the nuts and bolts to that? If you've got somebody who's a great mentor, 
and, and is going to help you become a high performing doctor. Increasingly, I am now encouraging and counseling a lot of new graduate veterinarians is you should have a base salary, but, but beyond that, you should be at a production um, uh, like me, a pro sell or whatever it may be, whatever you want to call it within three, even six months out, because that is a mentor who is going to walk the talk and say, I'm going to help you become a high producing veterinarian. Um, and so, and a lot of veterinarians don't even know that a lot of new graduate veterinarians don't know that. And what happens is, is the allure of, well, here's the salary. And when somebody throws out some salary to you, even it may be extremely appealing. The next question you have to ask yourself is, okay, are there any strings attached? So for instance, there are some corporations out there, they'll give you a nice big starting salary, but guess what? Um, you've got to be with us for X amount of years. So you might be in a, in a situation that has a good salary, quote unquote, starting salary. But if it's a toxic culture, which I know is, is near and dear to you, uh, Cody, um, you're setting yourself up to fail. And so salary is important, negotiating a salary. But to me, it always, always comes around to is how much can I earn at this, at this place of employment? And again, what that presupposes is that individual is going to help you become a high performing doctor as far as that goes. Right. And I can, I can feel the wheels turning in the audience thinking, uh, you know, that, that almost level of embarrassment, uh, asking a practice owner or, or a practice manager, what is my, what is my actual earning potential? Right. Because then they, they have to talk a little more specifically with you about how the practice is doing. But that's a very important thing for you to know. Uh, and, and if I'm on the other side of the table and somebody asks what their earning potential is, then they're just that much more of a, of a great potential candidate because they are speaking like that. So I, I get that, you know, of course, talking about money for some people is always uh, seems very taboo. Right. And, and, if, and, and then we're, on top of that, we're in the veterinary industry where basically I think 95% are financial martyrs where, where we are, there's this expectation of sacrifice when it comes to money. And, and of course we're, it's it's not the case and it doesn't have to be the case and and we can have these open conversations so i love that uh but i just want people to know that great practice owners would really respect those types of questions to delve even deeper into the discussion of what their earning potential is and what the practice is on track to do so let me give you a couple examples i remember Many, many years ago, when I moved to the state of Illinois, there was a practitioner, it was a pretty successful practitioner. He had uh, 12, 13 doctors that, that worked for him. And his standard interview question, I always say this, this particular gentleman, you either interviewed with him or um, you took a job with him. He was just a kind of a big, high, high profile uh, employer in the Chicago land area. And one of his famous questions he would always end his interview with is, it was this question. How much money do you want to make? And many years later, when I saw him at an event, I had opened up a couple of practices by then. And I remember going to him and I said, hey, Doc, can I just ask you this question? Why did you, why did you ask that question? He said, Dan, what's unfortunate is nine times out of 10, when I would ask that question, the individual, the recipient of that question would usually undervalue themselves. And yet they would leave that conversation when I would say, all right, I'm going to give you that that pay. They left happy, but they nine times out of 10, they undervalued of what I was willing to pay them. 
Right. And so the example I use is, is that example because I share with uh, one of our, our partners in, in 7S, and that's Adam. This is the one time you need to be selfish. You have great potential as a new graduate veterinarian. Your earning potential is huge. Be selfish. Be selfish. And that also means asking the right questions. So, for instance, what does a new graduate veterinarian produce in your organization? What's my expected pay after two years? What can I earn? You've got to be willing to ask that question. How refreshing that would be as an employer who is so passionate about producing high high high-producing veterinarians, um, if I was asked those kind of questions, I really believe there is a correlation between asking those tough questions and finding yourself in the right practice. I say this again and again, down blue in the face. Yes, there are a lot of jobs out there, but there are few plum jobs that are committed to helping you become the best veterinarian that you can become. I love it. <laughs> no, it's exactly right. It's uh, it, that is the time. It's your life, right? It is your life. It is your career. It is your destiny. This is this is it is all up to you. And and yeah, sometimes you you might feel a little embarrassed to talk about money, but um, like I said, on the flip side, those employers that are worth you investing in um, will appreciate that so much. So let's reel it back a little bit and give some. And let's just, let's give a very clear cut sort of generic answer for how a new uh, graduate uh, should be structuring their, um, or at least be guiding the practice they want to work with if it's not something that looks appealing to them. You know, what, what is your suggestion? You kind of laid it out there a little bit, a base salary, uh, three to six months working on that. So just lay out for us kind of what you think the most simplest, uh, but also the most fair sort of uh, first uh, line item salary negotiation uh, should look like on that contract. Yeah. So my recommendation is when you're looking for that proverbial first job is first and foremost, it starts with you having a budget. What is it that you, the absolute bare minimum that you want, you will not go below. All right. And that's based on um, you paying your bills. So you've got a budget, paying your debt, having the kind of lifestyle realistic of, of somebody right out of veterinary school. Cause at the end of the day, um, You've got to have a life. You've got to pay your bills and you've got to have that work-life balance. And so once you have that idea, this is what I need to make, that's the, that's the bare minimum and you go up from there. And so um, if you want that ideal first job, part of that is making sure that it, you're compensated in a way that you have that work-life balance. I think that's critically important for you. So for instance, if I've got a new graduate veterinarian and they want to work in the city, as opposed to one of our suburban practices, the reality is the city practice, the cost of living could be 20, 25% higher. So if you've got maybe significant debt, I might encourage that individual, okay, I'm going to get you to a city practice, but it might behoove you to work out in the suburbs where I can get you to become a high performing veterinarian in the next 18 months, where you can walk into any practice in the city and become a high performing doctor. So I think you have to start with a budget. What is the bare minimum? What's, what, what, is, what is my ideal scenario as far as compensation and then negotiate? And you said it best, um, Cody, it's a negotiation. I don't care if there's national norms and those types of things. Why are there outliers? In any scenario, there's always outliers. 
matters. Know your worth and then negotiate up. Don't start low, start up. You can, you can always go down. But if you know what your non-negotiable is, so let's say as a new graduate veterinarian, I've got to make $100,000 US dollars a year. I know that's that's my rock bottom. So am I going to start at $100,000? No, I might start at $125,000, dollars Now, some people are falling down off their chair saying, you got to be kidding me. And guess what? I know new graduate veterinarians that are making um, $125,000, $130,000 a year starting salary because they've negotiated it and they found the right employer who's willing to invest in them. Absolutely. Yeah. So know your worth. Uh, but you also said something that everybody should take home as well is, is there has to be some realism in there as well. Uh, we, you know, we do have to live within our means just because we are now graduated doesn't mean that we automatically get the Porsche or the Beamer or the, the big fancy house. Um, you know, the most successful veterinarians, uh, you know, long-term that I know really didn't change their lifestyle in the first five or six or seven years out in practice. Uh, so there has to be that level of realism. Um, you know, living within your means, but you're right. You need to negotiate uh, what you're worth. I was also thinking as you were speaking, I was starting to get feeling sick thinking about some of the offers that I've heard over the years, uh, specifically in, in rural practice uh, of, of I, some of these practice owners, they really couldn't truly afford to pay more than what they were offering because of of management um but man i've heard some just slap in the face first offers uh, i can think of a veterinarian couple so so a husband and wife new graduate team they were offered seventy thousand dollars combined total oh. salary, total salary combined oh. i've oh. heard of forty thousand i've heard of 50,000. I've heard of 65,000, like in some of these pockets. And it's just so depressing. And they have the same student debt load as, as anybody coming out of Purdue or, or Cornell, but it is a, uh, Oh my goodness. I can't believe some of the offers that are out there. And it's not, it's not malicious on some of these practice owners. Um, and, you know, on their part. And some of these people accept these job offers because they know that this person can't afford any more, but it just sets them up for failure. It's just everything is, well, there's and, no and good end to that. We even hear stories of new graduate veterinarians. They will go on and take internships with um, no hopes of doing a residency for the simple purpose of, I feel I have to have more experience. And now that's not necessarily a bad thing, but you have to ask yourself, am I willing to take a salary of $25,000, $35,000 a year, particularly when I have indebtedness? I throw this out all the time. Um, it breaks my heart when I hear new graduate veterinarians say that I will have my debt for 15, 20 plus years. And as a steward of my employees, I think it behooves us to help them, to show them a path. And for everybody, it could be a little different, a path to how to get out of debt within five to seven years. But that also means to help show them how to become a high-performing, a high-producing doctor. And I'm not suggesting that they have to work 60, 70, 80 hours a week. The reality is there's many practices out there that are doing just that. And that's why you have to align yourself with the right individual who knows what your goals are and help and will help you achieve those goals. And part of those goals 
would be, how do I get out of debt? How do I become a high performing doctor? So, you know, um, God love those individuals that take those types of salaries. Um, to me, um, hopefully though, they're the few and far between. Um, I think we have to, as a profession holistically, and also at a granular level, look and say, is that something that really we should be doing? Um, how do, how can we come alongside and help those new graduate veterinarians eliminate their debt? One of the things I will tell new graduate veterinarians, cause you know, one of the reasons we started the 7S Society is we are big believers in, in practice ownership. And I now will tell new graduate veterinarians, if you want to be a new, you want to be a practice owner, share that with your prospective employer. I use Christy Crow as my example. Christy, as you all know, is coming on as an associate veterinarian. And one of her goals is simply this, Dr. Dan, I want to be a practice owner in two years. Okay. So the moment you start with us, we're going to, we're going to work towards that goal. Share your goals with your prospective employer. Yeah, that's well, that's the secret sauce, right? That's the secret sauce of of any good manager is if you even if that even if that goal means that eventually that person is aspiring to do something outside of your organization, the only way to get their best self is to help them achieve their goal, right? So you will benefit, right? You would so even if Christy is going to end up leaving your organization, you will benefit greatly through helping her achieve those goals while she's there because she will give you her everything. Uh, but hopefully, you know, hopefully she stays within the organization, obviously, and, and that there's a great fruitful relationship after that. But that is the, that is a really the only way in terms of management that you can truly succeed. You have to know those, those, those primary end goals and you have to work with them to get there. And that might not always be what's best for you as the, as the leader, but it, I don't, I've never figured anything else out. No, I, I agree. And, and, you know, going back to um, the whole idea of, of compensation, there's one thing I did want to mention, Cody, is because we're starting to see increasingly more and more employers are offering things. I call it the carrot of here's a hiring bonus or a signing bonus, or maybe some are calling it a relocation uh, bonus, whatever it may be. And again, I'm not anti um, these bonuses, um, but I would say this. You need to ensure that these bonuses are not tied to some restrictive covenant. What do I mean by that? In order to get this bonus, you need to stay with us 18 months or 24 months. There needs to be some clause that could be an out clause. And what we're, what we're seeing more and more of these contracts, if you don't stay for maybe what's considered normative, um, you could potentially have to relinquish that bonus. And so be very, very careful about signing any contract that has that quote unquote carrot, but restricts your ability moving forward. And so, and I realize, you know, we're all in position as new graduate veterinarians. Um, we, there's certain things, the liabilities we have, like paying off our student loan debt or, or, or securing an apartment. And I'm fine with all of that, but be very careful about any restrictive clause associated with those kind of bonuses. Yes, absolutely. And we are seeing as the as the job market changes, we certainly are seeing a lot more of those. There's no doubt. Uh, let's talk about both uh, in terms of benefits. So let's talk about specific benefits and then also vacation. Uh, I, I love I love negotiating these as the employer. Um, because to me, it's just a lot of fun. I want people to not have any sort of negative expectation that that uh, 
you know, that they have to pay for something that they expect. Um, and then also as an employer, oftentimes negotiating for vacation is, is one of the easiest things that I could do to give somebody a few extra days, uh, to make them feel better is, is, uh, is a really easy thing for me to do. So let's talk about what are some standard benefits you see on your side? Yes. As far as benefits, I think it's pretty standard uh, out there's two weeks. Um, I think what we're starting to see more, I know uh, our organization adopted this is three weeks. One of the things that we do um, is, because what we find, to be honest with you, Cody, is a lot of our new graduate veterinarians are very reluctant to take vacation. Um, and Not so, a millennial. A millennial reluctant <laughs> to work? I know. I know. I'm like, wait a minute. I thought you guys liked vacation. <laughs> so one of the things that we have started to do is you must take at least one week in that first six months. Because let's face it, you know, that first, particularly that first three months, you're drinking from the fire hose. You're right. You're exposed to so many different things. And even though it's an exciting time, particularly if you're in that right environment, um, it's like you're going 80 miles an hour. And so I increasingly encourage our new graduate veterinarians between that four to six months, um, go off and, and take that one week. And it may not be to some exotic location, but, but take some time off. So increasingly, I would say two weeks to me is the absolute minimum. Uh, increasingly, I like to, uh, to recommend to a lot of new graduate veterinarians, uh, three weeks to me would be, would be the optimal. For sure. Yeah, I would say uh, here in my geography of three weeks, because we're in a pretty competitive marketplace, is pretty much the norm now uh, for for a new graduate. Uh, I, I think back to my poor wife uh, starting her degree after her degree in agriculture economics uh she she worked for a giant multinational company and and she worked a full year without a day off there was no vacation and that's that's still not uncommon in some diff, some specific industries here so so it yeah 3 weeks is is pretty standard for sure uh i don't think i've ever had a new graduate um negotiate anything more the only thing that i've had which I love to give and have no issue with is I've actually had uh, new graduates negotiate uh, maybe like actually an extended uh, without pay time off to go travel somewhere that they had always wanted. So uh, going to New Zealand for two months was one uh, or somebody had a, a wedding and, and honeymoon trip planned. So they negotiated a, a without pay extended leave. Uh, I did it as a, as a new graduate. Uh, my wife and I went to Turkey for 16 days um, and, and I did that as an unpaid leave. So, but uh, those in all those circumstances, they were always negotiated up front as part of that initial employment agreement. Yeah, I, I think we are starting to see that more. And I certainly encourage that. It's not uncommon to see a new graduate veterinarian take maybe four to six weeks right after they graduate before they um, start that first job to go maybe do the, the European backpack. I know I did that for six weeks, my, my wife and I, uh, before we actually started our first practice, I was under the impression back then, I'll never have a vacation. Uh, little did I know <laughs> that it gave me all the work-life balance that I ever dreamed about. But um, so I think that's something to consider. The other thing I would just add there is I would recommend a clause. Um, and this is one little thing that I very seldom see, but I think you want to negotiate this 
would be if I don't use all my vacation, gosh forbid, if I don't use all my vacation, um, do I get compensated or can I go ahead and add that to the next year? So for instance, I've had one new graduate um, I, I, I can think about who um, wanted to take a very long honeymoon and, and it was her desire to take, I think it was like an extra week, week and a half that first year, add it to her second year so she can have a like a three or four week vacation. And so, as you mentioned, Cody, just have that conversation because I, I do think vacation and downtime is very important for all of us as far as that goes. Yes, for sure. And you're right. I have seen some circumstances where it's been um, like a use it or lose it sort of um, piece. And it really wasn't an issue until the end of the year. And the associate realized that, oh, I just assumed that it was a rollover or that I've assumed that it was a payout or, or that's what my friends told me that it was going to be. So you're right. That is uh, that it's not something anybody thinks about until it's the end of that calendar year. And, uh, and you need to know upfront for sure. Uh, What about some other benefits? So uh, typically within the, the large animal world, the the mixed animal world, uh, clothing and equipment uh, is, is a pretty common one. So things like coveralls, warm clothing, uh, winter boots, all of those things that us tough large animal folk need to do our jobs. Uh, Usually there's, you know, it's somewhere in the range of a three to $500 that, that will help cover and offset some of those costs. So people are probably properly um, equipped. Uh, veterinary trucks is often one that that is uh, not necessarily a point of contention, but does come up. Uh, so there's different things for us when we're doing ambulatory care. Uh, I've seen some contracts where it is... Uh, you know, you have full use of a clinic truck when you're at work. Uh, whereas I've seen others that the the veterinarian owns the vehicle and the, uh, the 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 vet box in the back, and then they're paid a mileage. So so there's not necessarily it's a, a, at times could be a bit of a benefit, um, but certainly something that just needs to be worked out. Continuing education is another one. Um, Pretty commonly between three to five days of paid time off to go to continuing education, and anywhere I've seen probably in the realm of of a uh, thousand to three thousand uh, dollars to pay for uh, the expenses for that continuing education. So that would kind of be the the breadth of of some of those other benefits that we would see. Right. Yes, I agree, and we we see that pretty typical in the in the small animal world as well. Um, I, I would say um, CE would be a big one. You, you definitely want to work for an employer who's committed to continuing education. So um, having a dollar, what we found in our organization is people like a dollar amount, but but ideally you want to be with an employer who says, you know what, as long as this is something you're passionate about, will help you grow as a veteran and help the organization, um, we're going to pay for that. Because as you will know, an ultrasound course could be easily $2,500. Um, some of the surgical courses. And so, um, um, you know, but, but again, having a dollar amount, but, but ideally have an employer who says we're committed to you and your future success. And that also means uh, continuing education. One of the things that we also do is a wardrobe, similar to what you guys do is a wardrobe um, allowance. What we have is our new graduate veterinarians outside of the, the typical smocks and so forth. We now give them just a thousand dollar wardrobe have been poor college students go and they're some of the most frugal veterinarians I know you give them a thousand dollars and they can stretch that money it's <laughs> amazing but you know what's what's neat about that 
is it just gives them that additional confidence. You know, it's think about it. We get a nice new shirt or a nice pair of shoes. We right, we're kind of strutting ourselves, and it just gets them off to a right start. And so I really am a big fan. This is something I learned from my very good friend Jim Delano. And I was initially kind of skeptical, and our new graduate veterinarians love it. They love it. So I think you know that's something you can certainly ask for. CE is huge. Uh, vacation. I think some of the standard things would be um, uh, potentially plus or minus disability insurance, um, definitely um, uh, compensation for your uh, professional liability insurance trust, the proverbial malpractice, um, a CE allotment, um, any licensures uh, expense associated with licensures, everything from the uh, DEA to state licensures, those types of things, um, I think are pretty normative nowadays. Um, I think that's probably the the all-inclusive, and then you've got the uh, health insurance, um, things like dental, vision, and health insurance. And I would really encourage that individual to really do their due diligence to make sure it's the type of health insurance that you want. We have had some veterinarians throughout the years that have said, hey, just give me a stipend and I'll go ahead and get private insurance. Might be a little different than what you have in Canada, but um, um, that's something that I think is, is important because we all know that insurance, there's a wide range of health insurance providers that are out there as far as that goes. Yes, for sure. No, it's the exact same in Canada, even though we have universal health care that still doesn't cover our dental and our vision and prescriptions and stuff like that. So the, yeah, that's it. That's pretty standard. If I was like really in tune to, um, you know, as a new graduate and I had resources of an insurance broker or if I, you know, a financial advisor that has an insurance background, that would be certainly somebody I would leverage to just look through the plan that's offered and get me kind of a, a third party assessment as to what the total value is versus what exists in the marketplace, because my needs or my family's needs may not fit in. And I've seen that exact scenario where I've had some people that just wish or they have a different, you know, a spouse that has a different set of benefits. Um, and we've always been very flexible with that. Uh, but yeah, it's, uh, it's something that you can get some advice on that I think really just gives you a lot of value if you're not used to negotiating um, health benefits or, or similar type things for sure. You know, one of the things that we do um, that we started this about eight, nine years ago, and I really like it, uh, particularly as we started to see the indebtedness of our new graduate veterinarians and even our technicians increase throughout the years, is we now have a, um, through our 401k profit sharing, so I'm a big believer, right as early as you possibly can, you should be putting at least maximizing uh, whatever your employer contribution is to your 401k. But along with that, we now have a financial advisor who we pay a stipend to every year, and they will come alongside all of our employees um, if they participate in our 401k profit sharing or not, and come alongside them and help them on certain financial goals that they have. So for instance, if you're a new graduate veterinarian, if your goal is to decrease your indebtedness, our financial advisor will work with that individual and say, hey, what's a good way that we can hopefully accelerate the, the repayment of that debt? So I think increasingly you're starting to see that with employers as well. So definitely um, as a new graduate veterinarian, as a young veterinarian, don't forget about your retirement. And, and if, you, if your employer does offer something like financial advisor services, take advantage of that as well. Well, let's, let's talk about finally 
exit strategy. Okay. So of course, all, uh, whether that's a unanimous shareholders agreement and a partnership or an employment contract, um, of course, not all relationships are going to end well and you, you need to know what your options are. So specifically non-competes, uh, I think it's, as we're talking about, you know, as it is specific to 7S, uh, some veterinarians may realize that they want to um, exercise their, their entrepreneurial muscles and start something uh, on their own. And we've certainly seen uh, all kinds of different scenarios when it comes to non-competes. Oftentimes, you would want to to be practicing in the area that you're already practicing and familiar with. Um, so, so there's going to be, there's going to be some geographical considerations, uh, here in Canada, um, employee non-competes are pretty common within employment contracts, but based off of our law, uh, they're almost unenforceable. Uh, it takes a pretty significant, uh, base of, of evidence in order for that to ever be be prosecuted against. Uh, I think in some states in the U.S., it's very much the same. I think in California, they're, they're nearly useless. Uh, but it is something that you just need to really consider and think about. I think if I was providing advice to a Canadian veterinarian uh, that, that was coming online, I would, I would almost... Um, encourage them to not sign a non-compete at all uh it is uh, and you don't think that i would have never thought that i had that option as a young young graduate but once again that's also knowing your worth you know you're you got to convince your employer that you are going to be worth it when you're working here and you're going to be a great part of the team and you're going to promote positive culture and and uh if you're worried about me leaving then then i'm the exact person that you also want me to stay as well so i don't know it's just something i've been thinking a lot about in terms of you know non-competes and and their importance within those contracts and the importance of you having a clear path for setting up your own thing because i would hate for a specific non-compete to really prevent somebody from fulfilling their you know their dreams within practice yeah, I agree with everything you just said. And, and, and here's kind of my, my, my take on it. First is, contrary to popular opinion, uh, non-competes are very much negotiable. Um, uh, an employer that's giving you a, a non-compete, just don't take that on face value. That's negotiable. I personally hold this opinion. As a new graduate veterinarian, even though we do non-competes, we do not do non-competes with new graduate veterinarians. Why? Because the reality is this, we're pouring into that new graduate veterinarian, the chances of them going down the street as a new graduate veterinarian and quote unquote, stealing clients is almost negligible. To me, what I want to do is have that veterinarian bond to our practice, bond to our culture, get that individual to be a high performing doctor and then if we like this veterinarian, we want this veterinarian to stay, I'm going to do everything in my power to get that individual to stay. And so part of that might be at that point then, um, once we have a mutually agreeable relationship, a non-compete may or may not be a part of that moving forward as they're building a client base, those types of things. For me, I just cannot conceivably understand why you would want to give a new graduate veterinarian and not compete. So let's just say, though, because I do believe that in, in many states, it's still very much normative. First and foremost, recognize you can negotiate that. So, for instance, a non, 
non-compete uh, mile radius in, in a high density area like Chicago, Illinois, where, where a one mile might be considered normative. Um, out in the burbs, it might be in the suburban area, it might be two or three or four miles. Maybe um, out in the um, back country of Calgary, it could be 10, 15, 20 miles. So my point is this, study what is, what is normative for that area and then negotiate, negotiate. Keeping in mind that even if it is not um, enforceable, it does not mean, particularly in the world that we live in now, of a lot of corporate consolidation and so forth, uh, the power and resources that they may have to make life difficult for you. In other words, if somebody who has a legal team and the financial resources could make life difficult and could still uh, tie you up and make life difficult by suing you. Um, and so you want to really make sure you do your due diligence before you commit to a, a non-compete. So my bottom line is, as a new graduate veterinarian, I try to encourage our new graduate veterinarians not to sign contracts for the first year with a non-compete. Second year, I'm, I'm, I'm certainly much more willing to, to recommend it as you build up a client base. I, I understand the tension there. But certainly that first year, if you can avoid a non-compete, I would recommend it. Yeah, absolutely. And and that um, and and I assume and when you're getting somebody, if you get somebody to sign something in their second year in terms of non-compete, you're also you're also compensating for that as well, right? That that that's a good thing. Uh, that that you really want them that they're performing great, and you want to keep them in the practice. And I almost I just feel like like a non-compete for a new graduate is, is lazy on the practice owner's standpoint at times and is a crutch for, for good mentorship and good support. It just, it doesn't go hand in hand in my, you know, in my opinion. And, and uh, yeah, at the end of the day, you, it's your, it's your contract. You, like you said, you can negotiate that to whatever sort of level you feel comfortable with. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and, and again, don't feel that you have to just accept whatever the terms are there. That is a very much a negotiated item on a contract. As far, I, I will say I do think it is uh, unfortunate, but it is, it is still fairly normative for our profession, particularly as a new graduate veterinarian. Um, I, if I had to sprinkle pixie dust in all the employers to say, you know what, put your money where your mouth is and say, I'm going to be a good steward of you. I'm going to be a great mentor. And we're going to give you an opt-out clause, but I realize that's not the case today. So bottom line is negotiate, negotiate. I love it. Is there anything else in the world of contracts that, that uh, chop your butt, <laughs> for lack of a yeah, better term? Yeah, I, I think, again, going back to what we spoke about earlier is increasingly I'm encouraging new graduate veterinarians in particular to put those things, um, maybe they're not going to be necessarily enforceable, but to codify that into a contract, the things that are near and dear to you. So for instance, um, if if you want a strong mentorship and, and if you agree to what that looks like, um, put that in the contract. Don't be afraid to put that in the contract. Particularly, I cannot conceivably understand why anybody, why anybody would go to work for somebody unless they have interviewed and spent some time with that future mentor. 
So if you're going to go work for an organization that may be a larger organization and maybe you don't have the opportunity to meet your future mentor, then I think those terms of what you've agreed upon and what that mentorship is going to look like should be put into that contract. And so start making a list of the things that are near and dear to you. So for instance, let's go, let's say, for instance, you're going to work for an organization that has multiple sites and you've been hired at site one. They could potentially have the right to send you to multiple sites. That may or may not be important to you. Make sure you put that in the contract. So I think you have to give a lot of thought of the things that are near and dear to you. And don't be afraid to ask to put those things into the contract. A good employer uh, would, at, at a minimum, be receptive to that. For sure. Well, also a uh, an added benefit of anybody who wants to uh, be part of the 7S Mastermind, right? We would love to take a look at some of these and uh, and guide some people in the right direction uh, when they're setting up employment contracts on the other side of the table, right? Uh, certainly a lot of resources that we have. And I'm excited to announce that uh, all of our, all of our uh, 7S uh, events are now live on our webpage. I'll include a link in the description. So we got what next? Atlanta and Charlotte. Are you excited for those ones? I'm really excited. There are some great, great practitioners down there, and we have been just any day with a number of people that have already started to sign up. They're engaging us. So we are excited about uh, being down on March um, March 10th, 11th in Charlotte in Atlanta. So um, I think oh, I'm so excited. Oh, I love, I love both uh, Georgia and North Carolina. I'm, I'm so excited for that. Uh, but yeah, we... Um, we have everything up on 7ssociety.com. And if you click events, then you can see. Uh, Dan, we should do props to, uh, to Danielle, who did the events page. Uh, did, you, did you see how beautiful all the pictures of all the events were? Is that really what Anaheim looks like? Because I don't know. I was just in Anaheim, and I'm, I never saw the beach. I just saw Disneyland. <laughs> I was going to say, we're definitely going to wear our, our musketeer uh, hat. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. No, that'll that'll be a good one. But yeah, if anybody wants more information, certainly send us an email as well. Uh, that is uh, live on our uh, website or send us a DM on our Facebook page or Instagram page. Uh, people can get signed up on the website for the newsletter uh, for all types of information that's coming out there. And yeah, we'll be back next week with another 7S Society podcast. So thank you so much for uh, joining me today, uh, Dan, and we will uh, hopefully have Adam and Danielle on the next one. And uh, yeah, as soon as we mentioned we were talking about contracts, it's like everybody just disappeared. <laughs> You're right. Absolutely. <laughs> but I had fun. I had fun. So we Likewise. will uh, see you guys next time. Thanks so much.